Today, Londoners have woken up to a very different city. Over half of America is on lockdown. As many of us must stay at home as possible. Hello, my name is Peter Tufano, and welcome back to Leadership in Extraordinary Times, a podcast from the University of Oxford's Said Business School. I'm a professor of finance and the dean here at Oxford Said. In this series, we bring you the latest business research and analysis from our faculty and from our network of industry insiders. Together, we are reimagining the global business world in the wake of COVID-19, understanding its impacts across sectors from real estate to banking, advertising to mergers and acquisitions, and making sure that we're ready, that you're ready for the challenges that lie ahead. Please do check out our growing archive of past episodes if you haven't already. Subscribe now wherever you get your podcasts or visit oxfordanswers.org for details on what we've covered. You'll find many conversations, including Business Unusual, with former CEO of Unilever Paul Pullman, the chairman of the Said Business School School Board, and how to make this a dawn of a new moral leadership, a discussion with Jacqueline Novogratz. Episode 4, Leadership in a New Retail Landscape. In this episode, we're assessing the historic challenges the retail sector is facing internationally. Even in business as usual times, these changes have been transformational, including growth of online retailing and the birth of an entirely new consumer culture in parts of the world. These drivers have already changed the retail landscape. They've caused the demise of many traditional retailers, seen the closure of stores and a much reduced physical footprint for the sector in many markets. But the current crisis has created an even more perfect storm with some remarkable features. The lockdown of all non-essential retailing for months in many markets, frenzied stockpiling by consumers, digital queuing to get access to retail websites or to book delivery slots, and importantly, the recognition of the grocery workforce as key workers. It's clear that we're going to emerge into a changed world so what will the retail world look like post-COVID? We've brought together an expert panel to help explore this. Helen Dickinson, OBE, is Chief Executive of the British Retail Consortium. She's leading a UK trade organization charged with supporting retailers seeking to plan for the future in these critical times. Dr. Alan Treadgold is a retail sector advisor with more than 20 years of experience internationally. He's been head of retail at Leo Barnett, as well as partner and global head of retail at PA Consulting. And in the chair is my colleague, Jonathan Reynolds, Associate Professor of Retail Marketing here at Side Business School, where he's also a director of our Institute of Retail Management. Over to Jonathan. I was prompted to create a classic Oxford exam style question to kick us off. These are questions to which the answer is not always the obvious one. That's the hint, okay. So, so let me ask you both to consider this. It's been suggested that retailing will never be the same again. Uh, do, do you agree? Uh, and let me start with, with Helen, perhaps, to kick this off. Thank you, Jonathan. There's no doubt that, um, that the virus has been a massive shock and potentially presents an existential threat to, to certain parts of, of the retail industry, depending on how both retailers and governments and members of the public respond over the coming weeks and the months. And certainly from a, from a food industry point of view, we've had the supply chains, the resilience, the, the people who work in the food 
industry absolutely being tested to the limits by huge peaks in demand right across the world in the lead up to, to the various lockdown situations. We've had certainly in the UK, and I know it's different in different markets, online remaining open and being a lifeline, if you like, for, for so many of us in our sort of new forced different lifestyles. And yet for many retail businesses, their demand has been cut off completely with the closure of, of large swathes of stores. And this will be pretty similar, I'm sure, across all markets, but we've seen the, the largest um, fall in retail sales pretty much since anybody's ever started collecting records. And I think, you know, the question for lots of us, particularly in different parts of the sector, and it, it comes back to your question really is, you know, that there will potentially be many retail businesses that were perfectly healthy before all this happened that may not survive and come out the other side. And you know, we were facing into already a transformation, fewer stores, the evolving role of store, growth of online, greater connectivity of physical and digital retailing, and already seeing fewer jobs in the industry, certainly in the UK, there were nearly 100,000 fewer people in retail in 2019. Um, and a shifting sort of nature of the world of work, better paid jobs, more digital, more analytical jobs, um, but potentially fewer of them. And certainly, I think, as we look forward, there is no way that anybody that I'm speaking to, and I'd be interested in perspectives from a broader international point of view that is expecting demand to return to pre-crisis levels, like a tap that gets turned back on when the restrictions lift. And that's basically because not only we will be facing a more sort of stringent economic outlook, but also we've got the, the, the practicalities of, of constrained uh, supply just because of social distancing and everything that sits, sits around it. And I think that how much the industry will change will really depend a lot on the responses from here of many governments and the interventions that they make. Uh, we have seen, certainly from a UK point of view, some real significant interventions around job support schemes. And I know that's very similar to what has happened in other markets. But we could argue that that actually is a, uh, has just been a, a sort of temporary delay mechanism, if you like, because actually pretty much without exception, what we are absolutely seeing is that the pace of change, the acceleration of many, but not all of the trends that we were seeing before has quickened to a, uh, an exponential degree such that an emergency situation has caused a, a real mindset shift. So. So I, I do not think that the industry is going to be the same again in answer to your question, but it never was. We were already on a transformation journey. And I think part of what we are going to see play out is some of those trends will continue, but not necessarily all of them. And the whole question about how you implement sort of the, the experience associated with with physical retailing in a socially distanced world, I think is, is one of the biggest question marks. But it, 
uh, I say my answer to the, your question is it never was and it won't it won't uh, it won't be the same again because it wouldn't have been anyway it'll just be even more different than before that's a nice twist you get an alpha plus for that answer so well done thank you <laughs> uh, there's lots in there to drill into and we will do that but Alan would you care to offer your initial observations on this? I will thank you Jonathan thanks for the opportunity um I, I find that it's difficult, I think, to be definitive about the outlook for the sector in an environment that is just defined by absolutely extreme uncertainty. And the uncertainties that the industry faces are clearly uncertainties way beyond the confines of any one sector, including retail. But of course, what business leaders need to do is to narrow the range of certainty, of uncertainty, and, uh, and, and therefore have more certainty around the, the future environment. And I think actually it is possible to put some stakes in the ground as regards the impact of the virus on the retail industry. Um, and certainly I would envisage that a lot of those efforts by retailers to realize e-commerce opportunities to turn their businesses into more digitally enabled organizations that really better reflect the way that a lot of consumers want to live their lives and conduct their purchases. I think a lot of those efforts before the virus were at best partial in their scope and they were at best partial in their execution. But I think that this is going to be one of those areas that will receive a great deal more attention and is going to become much more uh, an essential component of just doing business. Uh, I feel that related to that, um, when I think about the, the pre-virus world, there was a lot of discussion in the global retail uh, industry around notions of frictionless shopping, ease for the consumer to move across multiple channels. Um, but I think that looking forward, um, the notion of contactless shopping is going to be an, a hugely important dimension of this frictionless aspiration. And I, again, my belief is that for many retailers, that will simply become a necessary part of how they conduct their operations. Uh, I feel also to the uh, real estate point that it's very difficult to anticipate a future that doesn't involve a lot of exiting of, uh, of retail real estate. And I, when I hear colleagues in the US talking about a, a future that envisages vacancy rates in premium shopping centres of 25%, in less premium shopping centres of 25 to 50%, well, if you've got those levels of vacancies, you don't have viable shopping centres. And clearly the knock-on implications for landlords are profound and also the appetite for investors to invest in the the retail and retail property sectors are profound and and to that point of appetite for investors to support the sector uh, i think it's been um, generally low for a number of years and i think it's very low now uh, and during the crisis and immediately before the crisis we saw a lot of very well-established retail names filing for their local version of bankruptcy protection. You know, it was Neiman's in JCPenney in the US. It's been Debenhams in the UK. We've seen other retailers like Macy's and Gap having their debt um, written down to essentially junk um, status, which tells you a lot about the lack of appetite and belief in even very large retail businesses. And I think we do have to expect that there is going to be more um, fallout in that regard. And I think that consumer change in shopping behaviour 
as a consequence of very significant changes in lifestyle and in work style adds to this sense of uh, uncertainty in the sector. Um, do I think to the exam question, do I think those trends add up to a, a retail never being the same um, outlook? Yes, I think they probably do. And I think the reason why they do is because what we're talking about in this virus um, is a global change to the system of retail and a systemic change across the total value chain from where the product comes from to how the product or service is delivered to the customer. So collectively, yes, I do think that uh, this is a uh, profound period of change for the industry. So let's unpack this a little. Retail specialist Alan Treadgold, Helen Dickinson, and Jonathan Reynolds are now going to focus in on four particular areas when it comes to the impact of the COVID-19 pandemic. The consumer, retail business models, the role of government, and implications for retail leaders. The clear place to start, as all retailers do and must, is the customer. Back to Jonathan, chairing the discussion. Now, I was talking to a colleague in Malaysia uh, yesterday who was um, commenting that firstly after lockdown, all the shopping centers in Malaysia were crammed with people shopping. And I thought this is very curious given what we know about reluctance of people to go back into business as usual. To what extent do you think consumer behavior will bounce back? Uh, I mean, Helen, you referred to this a little bit, uh, you're, you're concerned that it might not, um, following lifting of restrictions. Do you think um, that's actually going to be a, a practical expectation? What will firms have to do to encourage, uh, if you like, it's spatial shopping rather than online shopping, uh, if that's going to be their objective? Every single country seems to have a slightly different story to tell. And so I think one thing which is absolutely you know, the consumer point of view is how confident individual people feel about the safety of different types of shopping. And I think that mindset is, is different depending on the culture um, and on uh, the way that the messaging in that country has been delivered. I mean, I got a text this morning from a, a homeware retailer because homeware retailers could open um, in the UK and in the first few days of them opening, they had like-for-like like sales growth yeah. in a socially distanced store on last year. And it's kind of like that, that is sort of contrary to, to everything that you might otherwise hear. But if you take something like clothing, our reasons for buying clothes have almost been taken away from many of us from a short-term point of view. There's, you know, we're not going on holiday, uh, we're not going out, we're not seeing our friends. Uh, so our, our, our desire to extend our wardrobe has been curtailed pretty significantly. So, you know, th there will there won't be that bounce back. I think it will it will take many months, and I think there is a question as to whether it will fully come back in in total terms to to what it was before, uh, because actually what the virus the the situation I think has taught many of us is to sort of reflect on what it is that is important to us all. And it's reinforced the importance of community. Yeah. And I think that's where physical retailing particularly comes in. And so if there was one thing I would say about the sort of the consumer perspective, I think it will be the importance of service in a socially distanced world is even more vital, whether you call it experience or whether you call it service, just the importance of that connection, even if it might not be 
contactful, it might be contactless, is, is absolutely going to be part of the differentiator. And this speaks to a point you raised, Alan, as well in your, in your earlier remarks, and, and something we've talked about a lot about retailing, the need to be customer-centric. How has customer centricity changed uh, and how will it change in terms of what customers are looking for? Do you agree with Helen that service is the, the defining element of this new form of centricity or is it about feeling safe? How does that work? I think it's it's almost certainly both of those things. The service point, I, th I think, is really interesting and I think that it does actually open up some interesting possibilities for retailers to create some rather different engagement models. Um, I can envisage in some sectors, um, basic needs in particular, that products that we were buying um, relatively infrequently in physical stores, um, consumers may choose to buy on subscription, coffee pots or um, uh, basic needs in um, the grocery uh, cupboard. I could envisage a future um, which is work in progress um, amongst a lot of brands where subscription morphs into treating a product rather more like a utility going into a home than it is a physical supply of goods going into a home, you know, internet enabled washing machines um, um, that automatically replenish uh, washing liquid going into the, the machine, um, where service actually takes the form of uh, taking the shopper out of the process. Um, I think that plays well for a shopper that is gen truly concerned, of course, as they must be, um, about their personal and their household safety. And service takes the form of not actually going into a store at all. In fact, not even seeking to procure one of those very scarce online uh, delivery slots. So product becomes utility um, in that sense. Um, but I can also certainly envisage a world where uh, buying behaviour changes enormously as consumer lifestyles are required to change enormously as a consequence of social distancing uh, measures in particular. And it would appear logical to me that there's a tremendous vulnerability around those retailers whose business models have been predicated on a platform of very, very high transient um, traffic in very high traffic locations uh, that allow them to afford extremely high rentals in those locations. I mean, airport retailing being an obvious case in point, but by no means the only case in point. Think um, small format uh, grocery convenience stores in very busy, what used to be very busy urban areas. Think um, pre-prepared um, lunches, coffee um, shops. I think that those businesses are going to be very challenged now. Yeah. Uh, let, let's shift if we may to the, you know, the nature of viability of future business models in this in this uh, uh, next normal or whatever we're going to call it. How will retailers kind of square the circle, store-based retailers particularly, in being able to trade profitably under social distancing guidelines for some time to come? So are we likely to see the growth of kind of zombie retail firms as they kind of businesses restart but are unable to trade sustainably profitably uh, with uh, the store networks that they have, uh, and, and so will ultimately fail or have to shrink their networks? despite that initial reopening? In the UK, as in probably many developed countries, we have too much retail space. We had too much retail space at the beginning of March. Uh, and I think what this has um, done is, is just say, you know, if, if you didn't believe it before, you better believe it now. And really how quickly we can restructure that space either into different uses 
or from a retail point of view where there will be less retail making it economic for retail to be able to sustain you know a proper business out of that space will depend on the the the, the property structures you know the relationships between tenants and landlords in different countries the role of um, local and central government in each of those countries um, and certainly here you know we don't have a very efficient property system at all um, in that you know we've got quite a lot of long leases, a lot of them have upward only rent reviews. Um, and actually what does need to happen now is that those um, relationships do need to be restructured because without that, we will see a swathe of, of different types of bankruptcy. So a company voluntary liquidations here in the UK, um, administrations and just because um, certain businesses will be left with no alternative other than to put themselves through that process rather than to be able to, to really build themselves into a, a full sort of digitally and physically omni, multi-channel, whatever words we want to use, connected business. And I, I'm interested in um, retailers talking to me, um, talking to others um, about uh, moving towards more appointment type uh, models, yeah, um, yeah, which yeah. I think... It, it can work in some sectors. I think it probably lends itself more to relatively infrequently purchased, relatively higher uh, value uh, purchases. I could see it working in um, well in automotive. I think that may be an answer. I for some, I think that for others, um, consumers are going to need to, in their physical worlds, be used to queuing rather more than they've traditionally done in the uh, the past. The one-in-one-out model in uh, the local um, and smaller stores, that may be uh, an effective uh, solution. I think for some retailers, we've touched on this moving to more distributed outbound um, delivery models so the customer isn't purely coming into the store. And it, it seems to me that the answers will be of how to accommodate a, um, a socially distanced COVID-19 world will be different for different sectors and for different store types. And I'm very certain that there isn't going to be a single silver bullet. I think the answer will be a, a multitude of different initiatives. The panel digs a little deeper into the theme of online retail models. It's become commonplace for industry commentators to agree that online will continue to grow. But are there challenges in scaling up that the increased demand is not sustained? What does that do to the acceleration of the move towards more genuinely omnichannel retailing? I think it is well worth um, reflecting that different countries are at very, very different stages in their um, online journeys, if I can put it that way. And I think that what is um, working in some geographies is not working in others. Um, the the uniquely, almost uniquely um, joined up digital um, economies of uh, the Far East in particular are very different stages of their development to the um, Western economies that have gone through different um, stages of, uh, of retail development. Um, but to your, your question, um, I, I continue to be more impressed by the ability of retailers to change their operations in very short order to their very different um, operating environments over the last um, couple of months. It can feel like a lifetime ago. 
um, but it's between eight and ten weeks that we went into this very different world and I'm rather more impressed with the ability of retailers to transform their operations very quickly either in response to catastrophic collapses in demand or in response to accelerated um, increases in demand to quite unprecedented levels than I am critical of the sector um, for its um, slowness to respond to um, a different um, uh, operating uh, environment. Um, but I, I think as well that the um, it's very difficult for me to foresee a future in any geography that I'd be familiar with that doesn't have a much higher level of sustained demand um, for online retailing. I doubt that it will stay at the levels that it remains at in most subsectors of retail uh, during the lockdown. But I find it difficult to imagine that it will drop back to the levels that um, uh, that we saw pre these lockdowns. And is that because people are now more familiar with using it, that non-users have now had to use it and therefore more familiar? Or, or uh, is there something more kind of uh, strategic going on here by, by firms? I think it's several things, Jonathan. I, I think, um, again, the safety point to me looms uh, very large. Um, and Helen's quite right to make this distinction between basic need shopping and more uh, uh, comparison um, non-essential uh, shopping, but I think in the basic needs space, um, I um, I feel that I'm seeing a lot of consumers that are making a very deliberate decision that it's um, safer as well as more convenient to migrate a lot of their uh, basic needs shopping online, which is why I suggest as well that I think that we could see some uh, very different um, and very interesting um, business opportunities arising out of uh, that, which is somewhat of a step beyond purely booking your uh, online uh, order. But the one thing I would caution um, um, to be alert to is it's not necessarily the case that traditional retailers are best placed to realise that opportunity. Um, and I mentioned that point that um, before our world's changed, um, of course, the big global brand owners um, were very active in developing direct-to-consumer uh, channels. The technology uh, companies have been very active in developing direct-to-consumer uh, um, businesses. And um, a lot of the innovation in the retail sector has been by those um, incursive new entrants, um, which leads me to the view it isn't necessarily the case that retailers are best equipped to realise these opportunities. And I do think also, you know, what is retail anyway? The whole blurring of the lines between, you know, the traditional ways that we might have defined a retail business that, you know, really traditionally used to be a shop, then it was sort of a shop that might have had a website. Now we have pure plays, we also we have direct to consumer, we have platforms. We have independent businesses on those platforms, um, as well as the the, um, the platforms themselves being being sellers. So the whole the the landscape of um, you know where the, the the profit. So back to the economics of it, where the profits can be made, what the what the business model is that will actually you know sustain some shareholders somewhere. Um, I think has has just got even before all of this, even more complicated. And I think the, um, in, in, or more, not more complicated, but more um, competitive. Uh, and therefore all the, all the again, all the, 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 the virus that the, that the last few weeks has done is just accelerate that level of co competitiveness, even make it, make it even more intense than it was before.
Yeah. I want, before we talk about the implications for leaders, at the moment, certainly in the UK and elsewhere, many retail businesses are being sustained by government. You know, with the furloughing schemes and, and, and so on, the jobs yeah. for liquidity and so on. What, once lockdown start to be released, how far do you think government support will still be required for the sector? And you're, you're in this role in seeking to influence government. How should retailers seek to work with government during this, uh, these next few weeks and months? The need to change a lot of regulation very, very quickly has highlighted the importance of having that collective voice. The first thing is you've got to have good communication channels because otherwise um, you can't even have the dialogue. Uh, and I think while what you know the uk government and so many governments have done has been you know much overused word at the moment but unprecedented in terms of the type of support i do think that you know governments are not business people they're governments and they really need to i think the the how this is going to play out and the implications of some of the sort of systemic and structural things that we've been touching on uh, we really got a job to do to help them get their head around that because I think a lot of governments will think they've done the support, they've put the furlough scheme in place, they've made some liquidity available, tick, tick, done. And actually, we are only at the beginning of how this might all shake out because it's, uh, it's not going to be business as usual. We're not going to, back to the point about you know, it's not a tap that was turned off and we're just turning it back on. It just won't be like that. It's a marathon rather than a sprint argument. Yeah. Uh, and you know, all the things we've been saying so far a bit about the landscape of future retailing, the stakeholders and so on. The final thing I want to talk about is really the implications for retail leaders. And perhaps I could ask you first, Alan, what, what kind of leaders will retailing post-COVID require, do you think? What sort of skills and capabilities will they need uh, that are different from previously? Yes, um, th these are profoundly challenging times for the retail industry. I think we can genuinely say that they are uniquely challenging times for the retail industry, um, which puts such an onus on retail business leaders to show genuine leadership. Um, what type of people? I think leaders that truly understand what it means to be customer-centric, whether that's at the level of an individual store or a, uh, a large global retail enterprise, understand what it means to be truly customer-centric, um, are agile and willing to move at pace uh, to transform their organisations from what it is today to what it needs to be to be fit for purpose in this very different world. I think it needs business leaders and it needs enterprises that are resilient and resilience in leadership, resilience in leadership teams, resilience in value chains, resilience on balance sheets. And I think also, uh, Jonathan, they are leaders and their uh, teams of people that behave with integrity because one would like to believe that one of the positive consequences of the period that we are, and Helen is quite right, that we are in the early stages of, uh, of being in, is that we look to our leaders, whether they're in communities, whether they're in government or whether they're in business, to behave with integrity. And I would like to think that the retailers that will be successful in this very changed world will be the ones that have demonstrated that they've behaved with integrity to their suppliers, to their communities, 
to their staff as well as to their uh, customers. So it's a challenging environment. Um, uh, and I think that it's a challenging set of skills that teams of leaders need to be able to, uh, uh, to demonstrate. Helen, do you have any thoughts on that? Yeah, I mean, I would agree with Alan completely. I mean, I think the, the uh, retail is at the end of the day, it's a people business. Mm. People are at the heart of any successful retailer. And I mean, we at the BRC, we set up a, a BRC learning about um, a year, year and a half ago in recognition of this need to evolve leadership capability and skills right across the industry. And, and I, if just to pick some words to reinforce what Alan said, I mean, adaptability, resilience, um, empowered leadership, digital perspective, these are all the, the sort of skill sets that sit around um, an underlying importance of, of culture and purpose. And I think without that sense of purpose and the right culture with any within any, any business, no matter how resilient an individual leader might be or you know, how adaptable they might be, then you can't, you can't shift, you know, whether it's a tanker or a small ship, you've got to get everybody facing in the same direction. And you know, I think times like this just reinforce the need to be able to do that. And those that are going to be successful coming out of it are the ones that will, will show that they have been able to achieve that in some pretty challenging circumstances. In this final part of the episode, we're going to do a little future gazing. What might the future hold in terms of retail recovery and reopening around the world? For some clues, we're going to look now at an early indicator, in this case, the luxury shopping market. And we're going to hear firsthand experiences of a big and important player in this sector. Scott Malkin, is the founder and chairman of Value Retail, which specializes in the development and operation of luxury outlet villages around the world in partnership with some of the world's leading brands. The Bister Village shopping collection includes nine retail villages in Western Europe and two in China. These are now slowly emerging from lockdown. What has been the customer reaction internationally? There's certainly been a lot of pent-up demand. Hermes reported that in China, when the brand reopened in April, it did $3 million in sales in a single day. But how durable is this bounce back? Here's Scott Malkin in conversation with Jonathan Reynolds. I would say we are a good indicator in certain respects and possibly not the best evidence in others because it seems consistently that there's an enthusiasm for what we happen to provide, which is open air in the countryside, not in the urban core. Uh, surface parking, people drive themselves or arrive on their own terms, depart on their own terms. And what we are finding is that we tend to come back faster than any traditional shopping centers would come back and faster than full prices coming back. I think the idea of an outing, our whole vis vision has been a day in the countryside, a break from what's normal. We don't sell convenience goods. We don't sell more affordable fashion priced fa uh, pricing. We're in the business of delivering memories. That's the gift you take home. You bought for a family member, a loved one, you bought for yourself. That item symbolizes the trip, the visit. So we're, we're trying to be a place where someone goes once a year or maybe once in a lifetime, not once a week. What we're seeing in China is a, a sharp V recovery. Okay. We're ahead of last year in our numbers as of... Uh, only three or four weeks after reopening. 
So there's there's a tentativeness where people test the water. Um, so so you're seeing fewer people spending more generally, or how, how does that how does that ratio look at? That is broadly correct. Now in China, we are actually at at similar visitation levels to uh-huh. before. In the West, how people will gather, how they will behave in group settings, will shift as the vaccines emerge. I know Oxford has one yeah. well on the, the road. Yeah. And then the question becomes. To me, the interesting question is less what happens for the next six to 12 months before the the vaccine is distributed in the first group of countries that receives it, that receive it, excuse me, and more how will behavior be different after there is a broad-based vaccine Mm. in existence. Should we expect to see these kind of bounce backs? Have we seen it already in, for example, in your sites in elsewhere in Europe, as well as in... in, in, in the so in Europe, we run from, from Italy and Germany all the way through to the UK and obviously Vista Village and, and uh, Ireland. Uh, in our villages that are smaller in attendance numbers, we are actually back to trading levels that are consistent with last year, which is extraordinary. Mm. Uh, again, generally slower build of footfall, fewer people spending more. But in two or three of our villages last week, we outperformed the year before, which is which is surprising for me. The villages that are larger in visitor numbers and have these uh, social distancing requirements, they simply can't put through the same volume of guests. So it's hard to tell what the real appetite is. The trading numbers are off against last year, but well ahead of what we projected in our recovery yeah, plan. Yeah. So I would say that uh, for us, to the extent that, and I think again, we are an early indicator of what might be going on more broadly in these different Western European countries. For us, it looks like it may be optimistically and subject to whatever chaos emerges later mm. in the year from mm. coronavirus uh, reasserting itself. Uh, we're a U rather than a V, uh, yeah. whereas China, our experience is that it's been a V. The challenge is most organizations are led by, and I don't mean this to sound overly uh, provocative, they're led by talented, intelligent people with fantastic records of success as conformists. Mm-hmm. People are promoted for performing well within the confines, within the structure of an organization when all the rules are changing abruptly and continuously, uh, the leadership of these organizations normally isn't prepared for that. Life hasn't prepared them for that. They mm-hmm. haven't been selected or self-selected for that. And I think that's what we're facing for the next five years, three to five years. So it will feel and be more volatile, volatile even than it needs to be as a result of all of this. When I talk about conformists, I'd, I'd like to clarify that I think in general, the conformity is driven by financial expectations. Yes. So yeah. that the leadership in retail has often been selected by people who are reflecting the interest of investors, public company investors. None of that's wrong. But uh, one can see a series of trade wrecks touching uh, retail that are unnecessary so um, it's a it's a cycle you have you have executives you have a board you have stakeholders but but very strongly speaking institutional investors and uh, i i believe that whenever when all of those people selected pre-covid 
agree, it's definitely the wrong answer, right? Because they mm-hmm. they were aligned with yeah. a view of of the world that's no longer accurate, and they were selected because the goal was perpetuating the status quo rather than disrupting and reinventing the norm. That's not true in tech. That's not true in attempts to retail online, but traditional retail organizations still are dominated by either a successful autocrat who may or may not be able to rebalance and adjust in this environment efficiently and decisively. Um, And if he or she can, may or may not be able to get the teams in those organizations to respond Mm. because it's such a complex moment. Or um, what I think realistically should be termed committees. And committees are a failure for running anything. And the committee today is the board, the senior leadership team, having endless conversations that don't get anywhere decisive. I'm giving you an example of this logic, but I've had calls from brands. I have to sit there for an hour while I'm given the prepared speech about why landlords, I don't consider myself a landlord, have to be flexible. The brand is struggling, this, that, the other. Yeah. Every single factual statement made, I've just had to go through one of these this week, does not apply to us. Hmm. But the board has hired a consultant, has hired a restructuring expert. The consultant and the restructuring expert are telling the management team, you must go to every landlord and give this canned presentation. The management team, meanwhile, is not running the business. Uh, the consultants and the restructuring teams are intelligent people. But nothing that's said to me in a meeting reflects the specific relationship they have with our company, our service, our pricing. They're in there telling me why turnover linked payments are the requirement of survival for the brand, ignoring the fact that we've maybe been with for 15 years. (laughs) And the management team are, they're not rolling their eyes, but they're smiling politely knowing the whole thing is completely illogical. But they're not going to tell the board and the yeah. consultants and these yeah. these yeah. Red Adair people dropped in with expertise. Yeah. And these companies are going to go to the wall. There's not a question, yeah. right? If this yeah. is the way they're yeah. approaching today. Mm. They're dead tomorrow. Yeah. Uh, yeah. That's the committee approach. Yeah. And I think I, I think um, the team-based approach is something about assembling a group that is able, and some of this is based on history of working together already able to work responsibly, talk every morning, talk every evening, constantly adjust, constantly reinvent, and accept that everything's going fine in country A, and suddenly you're told that the social distancing norms are not going down from two meters to one meter, or being removed, they're being reintroduced. What are you going to do then? Or suddenly, this happened to us, somebody's partner, spouse started a hate campaign online because actually this person was resentful that the partner was going to work every day in a brand owned a boutique that happened to be represented with us mm-hmm. how do you how do you react and respond in an appropriate way these are things we're not used to dealing with we haven't had to address them before uh, but i think teamwork comes from people relinquishing uh, I would say relinquishing authority, but not uh, empowering control. Because then you just get back to the committee idea. Yeah. So it's defining roles. And I would think you know, we're talking about uh, 
retail companies, but I think the same is true for Oxford University. The same is true I, for- I quite agree. Uh, the university's bureaucracy, which has thrived for 900 years on, on, on committees. <laughs> I'm glad to see it's not doing that at the moment. <laughs> it's well, not- so the, 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 these are wonderful moments, again, perhaps, yeah, yeah. to be in a university setting where mm. the university has decided it's required to adjust because it creates yeah. all sorts of freedom. My thanks to Professor Jonathan Reynolds, Scott Malkin, Helen Dickinson, and Dr. Alan Treadgold. My name's Peter Tufano, and you've been listening to Leadership in Extraordinary Times, a podcast from the University of Oxford's Said Business School. Rate, review, and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And for more about this series, including past episodes and more insider commentary, please visit OxfordAnswers.org.